Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Our primary way of you know, doing Sunday morning teachings is by slowly walking through a book of the Bible. And so when we do that, we allow, we allow the text, we allow scripture to inform what we talk about. Because I would, um, there's some things in the Bible that I would choose to just kind of glaze over and skip over. Uh, but the Bible doesn't let us do it. We, we have to address everything. So when we slowly walk through a book of the Bible, we end up covering all sorts of things. Um, there's, a, there's a book by a dog, a dead old guy. Uh, named The Religious Affections. This is from uh, Jonathan Edwards. He's probably the greatest theologian who ever came to the United States. There's a lot of, most great theologians did not come from the United States, but he probably was the best one from the States. And uh, I want to read you something that he, that he wrote, because um, as we're going through the book of James, you're seeing that it's very practical. It's just like a lot of very practical life wisdom of how you're supposed to treat other people uh, what does it look like to be a pilot community for a new humanity on earth, which is what churches are ideally supposed to be? So he gives a lot of very practical insight, a lot of very practical help, a lot of very practical everyday wisdom for living that way. But it's not just empty, vague platitudes. It's a description of the life of Christ, actually. So I want to read something from The Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Here's what he says. Take away all the moral beauty and sweetness in the word. And the Bible is left wholly a dead letter, a dry, lifeless, tasteless thing. One of the dangers of, of preaching week after week and one of the dangers of being a pastor is cultivating a church where the life of Christ and the moral beauty and goodness of who he is is not what's at the center of what you are becoming as a church. And when you start teaching the Bible in a way, or you start living as a Christian in a way that removes the love, the grace, the compassion, the mercy, the goodness, the moral beauty of Christ, which those are all the things that Edwards says is most prominent about Jesus' holiness. Not that he um, was a goody two-shoes, not that he knew all the right answers in Sunday school. It was his, the beautiful thing about him was his love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy. When you remove that, Christians become religious. And we've said before that religion makes you weird, makes you hard to relate to. It makes you strange. And the thing that we've always wanted about Southside is to be a place where we are normal people who gather together and are just consumed with the love of Christ and what he's done for us. We're not walking around town with placards. We're not yelling at people. We're exemplifying the grace of Jesus by speaking what is true, by remembering that he saved us first. So as we're going through James and it gets very practical and gritty and salt of the earth type everyday wisdom, remember that Jesus was the one who exemplified the wisdom that he's speaking of in every possible way. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of James. If you have a phone, you can can just Google James chapter 2. Uh, If you don't, then that's okay. You can just listen. The Bible was meant, most of the Bible was meant to be read and listened to. 
And if you want to go back and read uh, later the references that we're going to be talking about today, then you can just, you can listen. We have this on a podcast, Southside Worcester. Um, we also, you can replay it on the, on the video on Facebook. James chapter 2. The main point of today's passage is showing partiality to any person over another for any reason does not befit the kingdom of God. There's all sorts of ways that we show partiality, and every single person does it. James picks very low-hanging fruit, like he often uses, and that is material wealth. Now, the reason why he picks that, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because in the ancient world in that time, there wasn't a huge discrepancy, or there was a huge and enormous, actually, discrepancy between people who lived um, in extreme poverty and people who lived in extravagant wealth. There was not like this, this middle class and so the church was trying to figure out how do you exist in the same room with two people on opposite ends of the extreme. And James is saying, showing partiality to any person over, over another for any reason does not befit the kingdom of God. So we're going to start with chapter 2, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For, and he's going to get very practical here, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor, poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, which was common in that time, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's what's happening. Remember, James wrote this letter to Jewish refugees most of them who were displaced from their homes, displaced from Israel, and scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin. And a lot of them were living in Roman-occupied territory. And they, they were followers of Jesus, and because many of them, because of persecution against Christians, they were forced out of their homes. And so while living in Roman-occupied territory, they started gathering in homes to have church. So these impoverished Jewish refugees were meeting in these homes, and every now and again, I mean, the kingdom is for everybody. 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 So a Roman might hear the gospel and become curious or become a Christian and visit one of these home churches. And James is describing a Roman person who, not only are they a Roman person, which was prestige and power, they're also kind of like a high-level, high-status, um, upper-echelon Roman citizen because they had a gold ring. So he's describing these poor Jewish refugees having church, and all of a sudden, a Roman citizen walks in who's got a lot of bank and sits down among them. And a lot of people would be tempted because of what, not because they actually love that person, because that what, what that person can do for them, to treat them different. 
partiality. This is what, this is what James is addressing. Now, <clears throat> there are a couple things we need to get very clear here. This is actually very important because this is where Christians get weird again. James was not rebuking the person wearing the gold ring. Don't miss the point of this passage. It wasn't his fault he was getting treated with preferential treatment. It had nothing to do with him. Wealth in and of itself is not the problem. It becomes a problem like anything else if it keeps us from God or when it's used to oppress others, which is the example that James gives here. And I'll just let you in on a secret. Compared to everyone else in the world, compared to 90% of the rest of the world, every single person in this room qualifies as being wealthy. Every one of us. If you were to walk into a home, home church in a hut of Rajasthan, India, which I have, you would be considered incredibly wealthy, and they would be tempted to show you favor. Every one of us. Wealth is not the problem. Wealth is not the issue. Some of Jesus' closest friends were wealthy. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were a felthy, fairly wealthy family. Their home seemed to be kind of a, a home base for Jesus when he was traveling through that area. Uh, when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, there were a lot of people from Jerusalem, it'd be like saying from Washington, D.C., or from New York City, were actually at his funeral lamenting with his family. There were probably some big names, probably some social influencers and, and leaders that were there. Uh, their home was large enough to accompany and feed Jesus and all his disciples. They were probably fairly wealthy, most commentaries believe. Wealth in and of itself is not the issue. In addition to that, Scripture gives us examples of other people. Um, there's actually some fairly interesting evidence that the rich young ruler that Jesus talked to and he turned around and walked away from Jesus, there's some fairly interesting evidence that that was actually Joseph of Arimathea, who later began to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus. And after Jesus was crucified went and asked for Jesus' body so he could bury Jesus in his own unused grave. Wealth in and of itself is not the issue. Lydia was a prominent businesswoman in Philippi. She had a large enough room in her house to hold a church. They met in her home. Jesus himself had access to all the wealth he had ever needed. He was so wealthy, <laughs> there's debate about this, but he had enough money flowing through his ministry that the treasurer was embezzling money and nobody knew about it. Judas was his treasurer, and he was keeping some for himself. Now, Jesus knew. He hints at it a couple times. Judas probably started sweating. But none of the other disciples knew it. And if wealth is measured by the provision that you have access to, I mean, he could produce things out of thin air. Jesus, we say this all the time, Jesus' first wedding gift, you will never outgive Jesus at a wedding. His first wedding gift was a lifetime supply of vintage wine. That was his first miracle. Guess what he was doing? He was picking a fight with religious, grumpy people. It's exactly what he was doing. Can you imagine Jesus as a teenager 
wanting a new tool for his carpentry shop, carpentry shop and asking his mom, can, can I get this new tool? Other people are using it. It's going to make my work easier. And his mom saying, you think money just grows on trees? Jesus could have said, that's interesting. Do you want it to? <laughs> I could do that. If wealth is measured by the provision that you have access to, Jesus was not in short supply. In Matthew 17 in Capernaum, Jesus is walking through Capernaum with his disciples. And when you were 20 years or older in Capernaum, then uh, you had to pay a temple tax. And so one of the, the people who was collecting the taxes came up to Peter, one of Jesus' friends, and said to him, what, your, your teacher doesn't pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, yeah, he does. Yeah. Goes home, talks to Jesus about it. And Jesus is having an interesting conversation, shares a, shares a spiritual truth with him, and then says, but so as to not to offend. By the way, Peter was 20 and Jesus was 20. We don't know about the rest of the disciples. Maybe the implication is that many of them were younger than 20. I think it's probably pretty clear that John was young-ish teenager. It's interesting. So anyways, Jesus says, let's, let's pay the temple tax so that we don't offend anyone, Peter. Remember, Jesus had access to any provision he needed. So he said, let's keep it interesting. Let's make it interesting. Peter, I know you love fishing. Go to the Sea of Galilee, cast your net in, or cast your line in. The first fish that you hook, pull it out and look into its mouth, there'll be a shekel. That's four days wages. That's, the, that's enough to pay the temple tax for you and me both. Go give it to them. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot of scavenger fish in there, so they would go along the bottom, and they'd find shiny things on the bottom of the sea and gulp it up. In fact, that still happens today. But Jesus, in his sovereign authority and power, made arrangements so that one of the fish would do that, and that same fish would get hooked on Peter's line. He had access to stuff. And that way, he was wealthy. So we have to be careful in this passage, really important, about mistakenly thinking that wealth in and of itself is bad or else we become self-righteous about it. That's not what's being addressed in today's passage. It's also important for us to see that James wasn't saying that they should show partiality to the poor either. The poor ought to be cared for provided for, and perhaps they ought to be enabled to eat first, but never honored over anyone else. Here's the point. In the kingdom, there is no partiality. <coughs> a poor person walks into a church in Judea, and what do they experience? They're treated with kindness and gentleness and respect. A wealthy person walks into a church in Judea, and what is their experience? They're treated with kindness and gentleness and respect. What James is saying is any distinction we make based on externals is always wrong. In fact, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you ready? Here's the standard. When you walk into a room... Everyone else is more important than you. How's that for a standard? That just makes it easy. 
It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. They could be wearing a three-piece suit. They could be wearing gym shorts. It does not matter. You prefer them over yourself. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Doesn't matter who the next person who walks into this room is. We honor them above ourselves. So let's just wait for them to walk in and see who it is. It'd be really cool if someone walked in right then. That's the standard. That's the standard because that was Jesus' mindset. Philippians 2, 3 and 5, if you want to write that reference down. Philippians 2, 3 and 5 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or deceit, but in humility, listen, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who exemplified that lifestyle. Now, here's a caveat, and this is really, really important. Honoring others above yourself does not mean that you neglect caring for yourself or that you degrade or dishonor yourself. That's when we get into that weird religious martyr syndrome we're just running ourselves ragged and end up resenting other people and hating our lives. <laughs> you care for others out of the authorized ways that God has called us to care for ourselves. Religious people squirm when I say things like this. But in the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments are about how we love God. The last six commandments are about how we love others. The fourth commandment is an authorized way that God has given us to love ourselves. And out of that capacity to love ourselves, we grow in capacity to love others. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath, a gift that was given to us. It was made for us. We weren't made to be a slave to it. It was made for us. We talk about this I've said this before, every person in here should have one day a week where you don't do anything you don't want to do. It's God's provision for you to care for yourself. And there's other ways that he's given us too, but that's a biggie. Notice in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the reason this is important because if you don't care for yourself in a wise, godly way, you'll do exactly what James tells us not to do in this passage. You will favor certain people because of how it benefits you. In the world apart from Jesus, you, people are tempted, I think, to favor prestigious, powerful people because it differentiates them from the rest of the world. Listen, in the church, you know what self-righteousness looks like? 
self-righteousness, the new social justice, is you favor poor people because it differentiates you from the rest of the, world, from the, rest of the church. It's the new self-righteousness. And what James is saying, you don't differentiate anybody. It doesn't care. Money's easy to talk about. But it could be for any reason. Intellect. Position. Looks. It could be anything. Any way that we differentiate ourselves is, James goes as far as saying, evil. If you don't care for yourself, if you're not solid in your identity in Christ and filled with his love and enjoying life in the kingdom as it was meant to be enjoyed instead of just being a drag, if you don't do that, you'll favor certain people because of how it can benefit you. My spiritual director said it this way. Listen, if you don't love yourself well in the ways that God has authorized for us to love ourselves, if you don't love yourself well, you will love others parasitically. In other words, if you don't love yourself well, you'll be a parasite to everyone else around you. You'll love and treat others different based on how they might benefit you, and that's not love. Whenever you show preference to someone for worldly reasons, it's always self-serving. You're using them for your benefit. That's not loving them. But imagine walking into a room where everyone is in that room is trying to outdo one another and honoring one another. As Romans 12.10, again, gives us a vision for this, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I'll be honest, this is a struggle for me. This is hard for me. And, and the reason is, is because I have all sorts of insecurities and social anxieties. I, I'm, I'm afraid of saying something stupid and looking like an idiot, which I have ADHD, so that with ADHD is a problem, and it's always been all my life. Um, all sorts of reasons why I'm afraid to be around crowds and the problem and I mean I hear stories of great Christian men who were fearless and I'm like that would be awesome <laughs> I would love that I'm not groveling over this this just is what it is you know this about me but the temptation with that weakness when you have these insecurities and these social anxieties the temptation of that is to expend more energy trying to impress people or be accepted than I do loving and serving them. In other words, I'm loving people parasitically. I'm presenting myself to them in a way that will give me favor in their sight. I begin to give more honor to people who can do more good to me. And that's what James is battling in this passage. There is one place, however, where I am totally free of all those insecurities and able to focus on others rather than myself, and that's my family. Now, there are probably some good things about you only ever getting to see the constrained version of Greg, because the unconstrained version of Greg around my family gets a little bit wild and gets a little bit goofy and spastic and loud. 
So they get the treat of seeing that, but you guys don't get to see that. And ideally, when you're with your family, you're not trying to make an impression. When you're with your family, you don't rehearse before you walk into the room. When you're with your family, you don't leave the room and ask yourself how you did. It eliminates the need for preferential treatment. Feeling completely accepted and loved exactly as you are eliminates the need for preferential treatment. Everyone's loved. In a family, this is how it's supposed to be. Everyone is honored. Familial affection eliminates all distinctions. Again, Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. Outdoing one another in showing honor. That's God's vision for the church. That's God's vision for us at Southside. That we love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. In an atmosphere of grace and brotherly and sisterly affection, all preferential treatment dissolves. It's not needed. You can show up on Sunday morning and not worry about impressing people and not worry about giving preferential treatment. You can talk to the person right in front of you as if they were the only person in the world. Imagine a whole room full of people doing that. If you spent time with Jesus, if you lived when he did, According to the stories that are told in the Gospels, one of the things that would stop you in your tracks is that when you were talking with Jesus, you would feel as though you were the only person in the universe. Christians aren't known for having that come off. We should. What if this place we did? What if this place of Southside, everyone was seen? Every visitor every regular attender, everyone is honored, everyone is cared for, there are no preferences. In his example with wealth, which is just low-hanging fruit, it's just an easy one to use, but it could be multiple things. In his example of wealth, you befriend people who have more means than you because you love them, not because of what they can do for you. You befriend people who have less than means, less means than you do, and not because they're a project, but because you love them. This is a place where we don't see the things that the rest of the world distinguishes between one another. We just, it doesn't even register. That's the vision that James is giving us for a church. And just imagine if it was true at Southside. That's all. Let me pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.